Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, our nation turns its lonely eyes to you, Captain. That's because I'm so damn handsome. But don't blame me. Blame my parents. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week we are featuring tangerine wheat by the good folks at Lost Coast Brewing, garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. This is a very refreshing citrus ale and tangerine wheat combines Lost Coast harvest wheat with natural tangerine flavors. We had a couple of these last week thanks to a good friend of the show and we are having a couple this week thanks to our friends here. First up, thank you to Rachel in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And a big shout out to Sheena in Farmington, New Mexico. This next one is from Jared, who at the time of his contribution to the beer fund was writing from a deployed base in Southwest Asia and from his wife, Amy, listening at home each week. Cheers to you, Jared, and thank you for your service. Thanks to all the men and women who serve this great country. And a big We Like Your Jib to Cheryl in Stonington, Connecticut. And here's a cheers to Karen in Upton, Massachusetts. And last but not least, we have Emily in Waukesha, Wisconsin. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's shows. If you want to help us out with next week, go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and click on the little donate button. If you like a beer koozie or coffee mug, check out the store page at TrueCrimeGarage.com. And that is enough of the business. Yes, it is. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. In recent years, 
Over 450,000 children were reported missing in the United States each year. Children taken by strangers or slight acquaintances represent only one hundredth of one percent of all missing children. Far more common are children who have run away, gotten lost or injured, have been taken by a family member, usually in a custody dispute, or they simply aren't where they're expected to be because of a miscommunication. But still, a very small percent of children reported missing remain gone. Professionals who deal with missing children cases are primarily police officers and local detectives trained to locate young people and bring them back. Our case this week is that of Daniel David Hohenstein, or Danny. Danny was born October 3rd, 1986. On December 1st, 1992, Danny living with his mother in Paradise Pines, California, is reported missing. Danny was just six years old. His missing flyer describes Danny as Caucasian, three foot eight inches tall, 41 pounds with a slender build. He has blue eyes and light brown hair. At the time of his disappearance, Danny was sporting a buzz haircut. Danny was last seen playing with a dog near his home in the afternoon hours of December 1st. His mother Jackie was inside preparing a meal for the boy. When she went to call him in, he was nowhere to be found. Jackie searched for the boy, but to no avail. After the boy was only gone for a short period of time, Jackie called the police, and the search for Danny began. But hours turned into days, and then weeks, and months, and still no one knew where the little boy was. The trail was going cold. There was no evidence, and little in the way of leads. Detective Vern Kelch worked the case as good as any seasoned detective could. He meticulously logged and organized every bit of information collected from the search as well as things brought to light by interviews and tips coming into the department. But this was truly a mystery, and the FBI offered their assistance in the ongoing investigation. In the public eye, there are some common misconceptions about when the FBI can get involved in a missing child case. Either there has to be evidence that a victim was taken across state lines, or that a ransom demand has been made. Listeners of this show know that that is not the case, as the Bureau often offers their investigative resources and technical assets to work hand-in-hand with state and local law enforcement agencies on cases involving the mysterious disappearance of a child. In 1993, FBI Special Agent Jeffrey Reinick was paired with Detective Kelch. His role was to help investigate the disappearance, recover the child, and apprehend the person or persons responsible. This is the case of the missing boy, Danny Hohenstein.
Over the years, Captain, we have had several guests join us in the garage. We've yeah. had podcasters, prosecutors, private investigators. This week, we have a very special guest, retired special agent from the FBI, Jeffrey Reinick. He has been involved in many cases of missing children and many cases of crimes committed against children. And we asked him to join us in the garage this week to discuss the missing persons case of Danny Hohenstein, who went missing in 1992. Well, Nick and Jeff, before we dive into the case, Jeff, could you tell our listeners why you got involved in the FBI? That's a great question, and I think about it an awful lot. I was born with physical birth defects. I had a club left foot, and the doctors also determined that I had cerebral palsy. And for my first nine years of life, I was the kid that was picked on and beaten up, separated from the other kids. I couldn't walk right. And uh, so my life, I wouldn't consider it to be a lot of fun. At the same time, my parents were taking me to all these doctors. And I originally thought they were doing this because they wanted me to be right. And I think they did. But I've learned in later life, in, in big part, because of my relationship with my wife, Lori, that uh, I think my parents are somewhat embarrassed or offset because I looked so different. I had a, a club foot, I walked funny, and I think it troubled them as much as it was an inconvenience to me. At nine years of age, I had experimental surgery that worked and caused me to walk fairly normally. And as I continued growing and developing after that surgery, I was able to run and do things, and I was able to do a lot of, I was able to do everything normally. I thought it was something that was behind. The leftover effect on me was that I was very angry because of my first nine years of being beaten up and picked on, and so I was somewhat volatile, somewhat violent. Um, it didn't take much to get me to go over the edge. I went through life. Um, my parents expecting me to go to college, and we decided that I would go to law school. I went to uh, Cheltenham High School, graduated. Then I went to Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania, graduated there, and then realized that I didn't have enough money to go to law school. So I ended up uh, just, you know, I was floating around. I always wanted to be an FBI agent because my dad had been an undertaker, and during one of the funerals, there was this high-ranking organized crime guy, and I was fascinated by these guys that were walking around taking license plates and all that, and at that early age, my dream was to be an FBI agent, which I never really thought was possible for me. After I was kind of without direction after I graduated college, I needed to find something. So I started applying to all these law enforcement jobs, including DEA, Secret Service. And then I applied to the FBI and they responded to me and made me aware of a position where I would be what's called a clerk. I went down for my interview and they said that if I did three years as a clerk, then I would be eligible to apply for agents class. And for me, that was totally unexpected. And that gave me direction. So I went to work for the FBI as a clerk. I had an advantage because I had a, a college degree and you had to have a college degree to be an FBI agent. 
So I went to work uh, doing menial things. I used to make the clerk badges, and then I did silk screening in the exhibit section of the FBI. And six months after I got there, the FBI stopped that program with the clerks and did not grandfather anybody. And I was once again uh, in a dead-end position. So your chances of getting into the FBI were made possible through this program. They canceled the program. Now what are you going to do? I decided I went back to school at night full-time to gain the equivalent of an accounting degree because that would enable me to apply to the FBI uh, as an agent, as an accountant. And for the next 52 weeks, that's what I did. I also had uh, started running because it made me feel like I could run normally. I enjoyed it. it. I could think, and it made me feel good. So I kept running. And so I had this life of working as a clerk at the FBI and running every night and going through to get my undergraduate equivalent degree of accounting. And I completed it. And sure enough, I was able to get into the FBI. My new agent's class was June 26th of 1978. And uh, and that's how I started. That's pretty cool. Not quitting the clerk thing. So you're still working for the FBI but you're running every night, you're going to school, you're going to find a way to make this dream a reality. And at some point, Jeff, you get involved in a, a unit that specializes in investigating crimes involving children. Can you take us through that process? Sure. Nick, the, the work I did with crimes against children didn't start until I had about 15 years in or 12 years My first office was Chicago, and in Chicago, I worked violent crime and accounting, and I was put on a what they call a Title III, which is telephone surveillance on a a case. Everybody has seen the movie Casino, and I was one of the FBI agents listening to the earphones on the the telephone surveillance with new agents. Um, We were pretty much worthless, so they would assign us stuff like that, and that would help us get acclimated to the job. A short time after, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer in Philadelphia, and I chose to go back to the New York office to be with him during his final years of life. And that's where I met my wife, Lori. We ended up starting our own family. And I know this sounds like a long lead-in, but I think you'll understand uh, in a short while. Lori and I, uh, we started having a family, and our first son, Joe, was born, and When he was three and a half years old, we had our second son, Jordan. For the week before Jordan was born, Joe looked like he was having a really bad cold. And when we took Jordan for his well baby visit, uh, we asked the doctor to look at Joe. And Lori and I will never forget that the doctor came in with this ashen, sullen look on his face. And he told us that Joe had a plus four protein spill in his urine and that that was very serious. And he made it clear to us that this was going to be a very difficult thing for us. The next few years we spent dealing with Joe, who was diagnosed with pediatric nephrotic syndrome. And this is where 
this is kind of the formative time for both Lori and I, because dealing with our son and the prospect that he might not survive and the hardship of dealing with his symptoms, Lori had more emotional strength than I did. She dealt with a lot better than I did. Shortly after we arrived in Sacramento, there was an abduction of a seven-month-old baby named Frankie Proctor, and uh, I was assigned to it, and it was like an out-of-body experience for me. It was nothing like I had ever experienced before in the terms of the drive, the passion, and then I got I worked with a detective at Sacramento Police Department named Greg Stewart, who great detective and and I was able to partner up with him. And so I learned a lot from working with him. And I also experienced something that was very unique in that I didn't want to go home. I just kept going. And four days later, uh, Greg and I and a few tactical guys broke into an apartment and we rescued little Frankie Proctor. The FBI, being the bureaucracy it is, like every other bureaucracy, uh, they started assigning me all of these cases. And that's how my work in the Crimes Against Children began. Jeff, don't worry about the long answers. We hear, we appreciate the details. We're just lucky that you're talking to the two schlubs in the garage. (laughs) Well, let's dive into this week's case, because at some point you were asked to take a look into a missing persons case. And this is six-year-old Daniel David Hohenstein, better known as Danny. And by the time you got involved, this was considered a cold case. Yeah, no, this is, um, thank you for asking that. During this time, it was in the early 1990s, the FBI had a new director. His name was Louis Free. And Louis Free was very strong in his belief that the resources of the FBI could help in investigating Uh, missing and abducted children. And as a result of that, uh, every field office in the FBI was ordered to go through their closed cases. And any closed case that had a child that was not recovered, we were supposed to review it and look to see if there was anything that we could use to try and, and bring it back to try and find the child. That's a pretty awesome initiative by the FBI. I reviewed the case on Danny Hohenstein, who had disappeared in November, the end of November of 19, I think it was 1991 or two. I, you know, it's been so long now. My notes say that Danny disappeared December 1st, 1992. Okay, December 1st. That, that's right. And I looked at that case. Now, the, now we're in the end of, of 1993 or we're a year later. And in my review of the case, Danny had disappeared. There was no sign of him anywhere. It was if he simply vaporized and ceased to exist. And and this really bothered me because that doesn't happen. And as I read the file, I saw that the Butte County Sheriff had a very, very good uh, search and rescue uh, team. And the detective that was working it, his name was Vern Kelch. And I could tell that Vern had a problem with Danny disappearing as well. The search and rescue folks and the managers believed that Danny had wandered into a very rugged canyon near his home 
and he met his end either being lost in the canyon or being attacked by a predatory um, animal in, in the woods. As I looked through the search and rescue reports, there was no evidence of him, any evidence of him at all ever being into the canyon. There was nothing. And it was just too much for me that a child could disappear in a period of 20 minutes and not exist. And I could tell that the detective Vern felt that way. My supervisor was a guy named Don Pierce and Don, uh, just an amazing person. He had this talent where he could recognize what people were good at. Everybody on our squad was engaged in things they were excelling at. And that's because Don could recognize these things. He was really was intuitive. I told Don, I didn't think that it just bothered me that Danny had disappeared and nothing existed. So he arranged for uh, Vern um, Kelch and Vern's supervisor to come down. And, and Vern's supervisor's name was Perry Reniff, who later became the Butte County Sheriff. They came down to the FBI office and we sat there reviewing the case. I said, at the risk of looking like an idiot, I said, you know, something's wrong because a boy like this doesn't just disappear to the point where search and rescue can't find any evidence of him ever existing. And Vern agreed with me. And that's the way he had felt. So Don Pierce, my supervisor, and Perry Reniff, Vern's supervisor, gave us permission to reopen this case and start looking at it. And that became this uh, unbelievable marathon for Vern and I looking to find out what happened to Danny. In a way, when you review these files and you're thinking about these things, you're almost transported back in time. And you realize that the better the investigators documented what they had done, the further back you can go and with the intensity of actually feeling like you're there. That was a real lesson to me. And my paperwork was usually not very good. But because of that, and from learning from Vern, I started trying to do much paper in my own paperwork because I knew that it, it could mean the difference between having hope or losing hope in a case like this. Jeff, tell us a little bit about Danny's home life. Danny lived in a small town named Megalia. Megalia is a very rural area. It's just east and north of a town called Paradise. Your listeners might be interested to know that Paradise and Megalia were two towns that were completely burned to the ground in the campfire from last summer. And so nothing exists there anymore. But Danny grew up in Megalia, or he lived in Medalia, Megalia. He didn't live there. He didn't grow up there. His mom was um, an alcoholic. And so her life circulated around alcohol. And because of that, she wasn't the most responsible parent she could have been. And Danny was frequently reported to be in the neighborhood unsupervised. There was one incident that really got to me emotionally where a neighbor who was interviewed described that on a cold, snowy morning, uh, Danny was at her door by her kitchen 
asking to be let in, and he was in his pajamas. He didn't have any outer garments on. And she described how she brought him in and fed him breakfast. And there were other incidences that were like that. There was um, teachers in his kindergarten class reported that Danny would fall asleep early in the day, and they determined that his mom was feeding him ice cream. And he didn't have a very nutritional diet. His teeth were deteriorated because, again, his diet was so bad. So Danny was a child who was neglected. That's pretty sad. One of the reasons that Vernon and I, would, one of the things that ate at us was because, uh, you know, here Danny goes missing and because he's neglected in the first place, no one really or they easily give up looking for him. And so that that was eating at us. And one of the things that I'm really proud of that was happening during this time is that Vern and I were developing a very close friendship with each other. And Vern was a guy who didn't really have great feelings about the FBI. So this partnership we were developing was a lot of fun. And he really took advantage of me in terms of I was a street guy and he I didn't know anything about the country. So he he would tell me these crazy stories that I would believe that were not true just to get me. Can you describe the man that they partnered you with for this case, Detective Vern Kelch? Vern was about six foot five. He was, if you think of John Wayne in one of his Westerns, that's Vern Kelch. He was massive. He was, his hands dwarfed my hands. He had a, a deep voice and he was a no-nonsense guy. Quite frankly, when I started working with him, I was intimidated because I wouldn't want to be on his bad side. And as we got to be better friends, um, it just, you know, I felt a lot safer. People, people have the misconception that police or sheriffs in rural areas aren't that good. Vern had kept this unbelievable documentation of the case. He had volumes of loose leaf binders that were organized in all different ways. And you could give him a date and time and he'd be able to look back in his records and find out what happened then. He was absolutely amazing. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play.
Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. 
With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Captain. Special Agent Reinick, could you take us through the known events of the day of December 1st, 1992? Yeah, the day Danny goes missing. Yes, and I'd like to tell you that um, this is, when you talk about working cold cases, the events and the day that your victim is last seen, they become imprinted in your mind and in your heart and your soul because it's the starting point of where you begin and they end. And you try very hard to cause one to overlap with the other so you get some type of uh, idea of what could have happened. And so in Danny's case, that day was a cold, rainy, chilly day. There was a house being built near where Danny lived. And because he was always out and about, he would always hang over watching the house be built. There was a dog in the neighborhood that was always at Danny's side. And the dog's owner was in jail. So the dog, like Danny, had no place to go. So the two of them found each other and hung out together. And Danny hung around there for the day. And about three o'clock or so, the workmen were getting ready to go home and the uh, supervisor uh, told Danny to go home. And and he actually told them, you know, you got to get a a coat on a jacket. So Danny went home and got a coat. His mother remembered him coming in and getting his jacket and running out again. And the uh, supervisor said that Danny came back with his coat on. And then these guys were packing up, getting ready to go. A short time later, Danny's mom went looking for him and couldn't find him. And so this is what we know about Danny's last day. He was hanging out in the area where the house was being built. He had a dog at his side. He interacted with the uh, carpenters that were building the house. And so this is where you start. Uh, And what happens is you not only try and get an idea 
of the logistics and the goings and comings. But you also get an idea of what Danny was like because these guys are telling you what their impression is. At the same time, you're getting impressions of these guys. And that slowly gives you the ability to start building this mental picture of what that day was like. Now, Danny's mom was, as we said, an alcoholic. And there were many times reported when she would be asleep during the day, probably recovering from the previous night. On one occasion before this, she had actually misplaced Danny. She had left Danny with a friend and forgot who she left him with and couldn't find him. So, of course, she met with a lot of uh, negative um, criticism because, you know, she wasn't really being mindful of her child. But it was also important to consider that if she could have lost her child for three days that time, how do we know she didn't do something this time? How do we know she wasn't pulling out of the garage and maybe hit him while he was standing behind? All these factors come into play as possibilities. But in what really got to Vernon and I was that here you have the mom who had lost him for three days and she never called police. And now Danny was missing for 50 minutes and she called police. So the question becomes, why is she so diligent this time? And this is an example of where you start. You have to find a reason. There's something going on there. And because her son was missing, she became very helpful and tried very hard to the best of her ability to help us find her son. And what we learned is that on that day, Danny was supposed to go over that evening to be with his father, and his mother was going to have the evening to herself to go out and do what she did. Mindful of this, she, uh, when she couldn't find Danny, she was concerned, not because she couldn't find Danny, but because she was going to go out. And she knew she couldn't go out until she had Danny accounted for over at his dad's. And the way the logistics worked out that day is that she was going to feed Danny before she took him over to his dad. So she cooked him uh, a pot of macaroni and cheese. So she remembered Danny coming in to get his jacket as she was starting the pot of, of macaroni and cheese. And then when she finished cooking it, that's when she started looking for him, a time of approximately 20 minutes and couldn't find him. So whatever happened to Danny happened in that 20 minutes. Then uh, she started looking for him and she spent another half hour looking for him. And then she called the police. She called the Butte County Sheriff's Department and Vern responded with the department and they began what they do so well, which is search and rescue and looking for Danny. And this is where we get to the point where there's never any trace of him, including his clothing, his shoes, his possessions, anything that's ever seen from him again. The dog is located in the neighborhood running around by itself, but Danny is gone. And this is what we had to work with. Right. So we don't have any evidence uh, suggesting where J Danny went, but do we have any other kind of evidence? Another thing that we had is we talked about how Danny was neglected because of his condition of his hygiene. Uh, Danny had contracted a 
an infestation of what they call scabies, which I think are like, um, uh, I don't know, they're like, it's scabies are like these bugs that make you wish, or like bed bugs, if you will. And because of the scabies, uh, Danny's mom had to do a complete cleaning of the house, doing all the laundry that was located in the house. And she also had to have Danny's head shaved because the scabies would, I guess, live in the hair. I don't know that much about it, but I remember the scabies was a big issue. And when we were looking for Danny, his hair was a crew cut. And there were some strange tips that were coming into the police department regarding the disappearance of this small boy. Do you recall any of those? Vern, Vern and I, we decided that we would interview his mom very thoroughly. We would interview his sister, uh, Shannon, and his brother, Brandon. And we would slowly take everything we could extract from them, and we would verify and run out each specific thing. And when it came to Danny's mom, the crowd she hung with wasn't the best. And so we started looking through her friends. And one guy in particular, uh, we, we determined from Jackie's friends that this guy was very sexually active and also very sexually aggressive. And while there was nothing to indicate he preferred children, we were going to give him a, a good, you know, look. And we eventually found him. He was down in the L.A. area. And we arranged for a polygraph operator from the Los Angeles division. And uh, Vern Supervisor Perry and mine, Don, arranged for Ber Vern and I to get the funding so we could uh, go to L.A. and have him uh, have this guy polygraphed. And this is where, uh, as new investigators, you start learning the ups and downs of working these cold cases. And Vern and I got ourselves worked up thinking this guy could be a good contender. And so we had a lot of expectations and hopes when we drove down to L.A. And the polygrapher we had was a guy named Jack Tremarco, a really, really good guy who got some, he in his own right was, was well known and thought of. And uh, we got the guy and had him do a polygraph with Jack. And we told Jack that we thought he would be a good contender because of his behavior, incidents that had been described that associated with them with inappropriate uh, sexual, um, you know, forwarding with women, things like that. And uh, Vern and I, what happens with the polygraph is it takes several hours. And Vern and I waited in a lobby area while. Uh, Jack had taken this suspect into uh, uh, one of the motel rooms where, and, and polygraphed him. And Vern and I are sitting out there, and shortly after a few hours, the guy comes out, and he looks sullen, and his eyes are on the ground, and he is really shaken up. So, of course, Vern and I get really excited, thinking, oh, you know, this could be it. And Jack came out a short time after him and we said, you know, like, how'd it go? And he goes, it's not him. <laughs> so we got ourselves so wound up thinking it would be him. It, it took some time for it to settle in that it wasn't him. But Jack said, even though the guy passed his polygraph, he thought he would interrogate him anyway. 
And the result was this guy coming out of the room the way he was. Jack had really uh, gone after him. And I got to tell you, it makes me proud to be an FBI agent to know that, you know, the guys you work with are, are so good and so dedicated and passionate that just because we were talking about the whereabouts of a missing six-year-old boy, you know, Jack was not going to let this go until he himself was uh, content. So when he let the guy out, he was pretty convinced the guy had nothing to do with it. So uh, Vern and I uh, thanked him, but we had to get going because the guy literally walked out and kept walking and we were losing him and we wanted to just touch base with him. And uh, we found him a couple miles away from the hotel and uh, we offered him a ride home and uh, he was crying and refused our, our ride home <laughs> because he was so upset and shaken up uh, by the interrogation. And it's an example of how you can get your hopes up as an investigator and then come crashing down when it's not what you think. And as you work these cases, Nick, what happens is you put so much of yourself into each lead and things start working up that when the lead falls through, it not only comes as a shock and disappointment, but it kind of saps your energy for a day or two. We talked a little bit about Jackie, Danny's mother and her lifestyle and Danny's home life. When you start looking into this cold case, there was reason to have suspicion regarding Jackie. Yes, this is really a special uh, time for me. Before I had even met Jackie, from reading the files and realizing the life that Danny had, I was already angry at her. Bear in mind, Nick, that I had myself a, uh, a six-year-old boy, same age as Danny, who was going through the after effects of a disease that threatened his life as almost took him from us. Lori, you know, had handled it with more emotional strength than I did. And so here's a mom I'm talking to that's got a boy who's healthy and she neglects him. So before I even met Jackie, I was prejudicial towards her. I was angry. So I, I went with Vern. And we went to Jackie's house and the door opened and Jackie came out and she and Vern gave this huge hug. And I felt myself get a little upset with Vern. I'm like, why are you hugging this woman after what she's done? And she was also considered by many to be a suspect. It was believed that because of her inebriated state, she may have done something to Danny accidentally. And, and caused him to, to die or whatever, and then gotten rid of him. So there was a lot of suspicion, and I didn't see any reason that she should not be considered in that light. But Vern did not think she had anything to do with it. And I learned a huge lesson from Vern that day. I learned that when you treat people with respect and you don't judge them, they become a lot more truthful, honest, and reflective trying to help you figure out what's going on. Because as we sat there that day, it was clear to me that Jackie knew that she was part of the problem, that she knew she had failed Danny's welfare. She knew that 
this probably might not have happened if she had been a more hands-on mother. And it was very hard to maintain that level of anger that I felt before I met her, seeing her this way. And I also saw that the Vern was just so amazing with her that I believe strongly that Jackie not only had not been in, involved, but was um, being treated with such a, a cavalier, like, oh, she did it, and he's gone, and we're never going to find him. And from being with Vern that day, I, I was like, we need to we need to go through Jackie and either find out if she did this or or stop prioritizing her. And so we arranged for Jackie to come down to the FBI office in Sacramento. And uh, she was polygraphed in Sacramento. And it was a female polygrapher who I worked with was really good. And I really liked her. And uh, she came out of the polygraph and said that Jackie um, had passed her polygraph, that one of the problems with the previous polygraphs is that polygraphs were done in such a way as to cause her to become emotional and that threw off the results. And, and this might be a good time for your listeners to understand how a polygraph works because a polygraph measures physical function. There's, it measures your pulse, it measures your blood pressure, it measures your heartbeat, and it also measures the conductivity of your skin. So if you start sweating, for instance, that conductivity goes up. And all these things together are then go through an algorithm and give the polygrapher an idea of the whether the person is, is, is speaking truthfully or not. But consider this, Nick. I have never met a victim parent whose child has gone missing that passed a polygraph. They all fail because they all feel responsible for the disappearance. They all feel that they let their child down. And so they all feel like they're the reason the child's missing. And so the polygraph indicates to them, you know, shows them as, as failing when in reality they're blaming themselves. So you always have to take into consideration the total environment, all, all of the, uh, facets of what you're dealing with. I, I hate to say it, but I did see in one instance a, uh, a father pass a polygraph. And what I realized in time about that father was that he really didn't care about his child being missing. So all of the emotional aspects that would have caused the polygraph to show its, its results weren't there because he really didn't care. A person who doesn't have emotion um, he's more likely, or he or she is more likely to pass a polygraph because the polygraph is based on our ability to feel and have emotion and react. And, the, and of course, the philosophy is that if you tell a lie, if you mislead, that's, that you're going to react to that. You're gonna, you know you're doing something wrong and your body reacts physically to what your mind is doing mentally. Right. And during this interviewing process and, and sifting through this information, there are other leads that are coming in. Yeah, I believe there was one, if I recall correctly, that involved a victim of molestation that indicated that possibly their father could have been involved in the disappearance of Danny. Yes. 
it's amazing. You know, I, uh, I remember writing about it now in the book. When you're looking for a missing child, the natural belief is that whoever took the child or killed the child was doing more than just taking the child, that there was a sexual motive. We got a tip in from a guy who believed that his father could be a suspect. And I don't remember exactly now, but I remember that he was able to give us enough supporting information that we were able to put this guy in close proximity to Danny. And possibly he could, you know, maybe he needed to be looked at further. He turned out to have an alibi that uh, that didn't, you know, that caused him to be cleared. But the thing I remember the most about that lead, which really stays with me even now, is that this man described to me that as a boy, he would try and stay up all night long and sit in the hallway to keep his father from going in and assaulting his sister. And he felt responsible that he couldn't do that. It left a seed in me of the realization of how hard this is for the family members, not only the victim's families. And that when something happens to another person, many times victims of similar crimes and victims' families of similar crimes will re-experience what what they did and it will it will reaffect them and i've always taken that with me since for all of our old episodes download the stitcher app they're free exclusively on the stitcher app also check out our bonus show our weekly show off the record on Stitcher Premium. This week, we're talking about the documentary, the HBO documentary of Adnan Syed. All right, we will see everybody back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.